0: Productivity. Productivity seems like kind of a quintessentially American word, doesn't it? I was curious and so did a Google search in preparation, as all good preachers do, and found this website, mollymade.com. And on this website, they had a list of various posts that could help you save time. Here's the titles of some of them. Three Ways to Save Time in the Morning. Three Ways to Save Time on the weekends, three ways to save time cleaning, three ways to save time at home, three ways to save time at work, three ways to save time at school, five ways, no, I'm kidding, three ways to save time cooking, three ways to save time running errands, three ways to save time organizing, three ways to save time planning a party, and my personal favorite, three ways to save time vacuuming. (laughs) That's about half the list, if you can believe that. Culturally, we are a society that is fascinated, that is captivated, that is obsessed with productivity. And frankly, it doesn't matter if you're not a productive person. Inevitably, your workplace, your boss, your life, the people who condemn you for being lazy, your life still revolves around productivity. Here's another list from Robin Sharma, who, as far as I can tell, is sort of a self-help guru and author from Canada. He wrote a post titled, 21 Tips to Become the Most Productive Person You Know. We won't go through every, all 21, but here's just a few. Number eight, get up at 5 a.m. Win the battle of the bed. Put mind over mattress. Sounds miserable. Number 14, work out twice a day. Do 20 minutes first thing in the morning, and then another workout around 6 or 7 p.m. to, and this is what he says, set you up for wow in the evening. Perhaps my favorite one is number 17. Write a stop-doing list. He says, every productive person obsessively sets to-do lists, but those who play at world-class also record what they commit to stop doing. The funny thing about all these tips, of course, is that they are in and of themselves more things to do, including writing about things you plan to stop doing. See, if you begin to dive into this world of productivity, if you start Googling this, it's a deep and dark hole. Of course, productivity as an idea is not in and of itself bad. You might remember the story in the Old Testament. The people of Israel have come out of Egypt and they're in the wilderness and God is providing daily food for them in the form of manna from heaven. And on one of the days, the day before their Sabbath rests, they're supposed to gather twice as much of this manna. You could say they're supposed to be doubly productive. But I suspect there's a difference, perhaps, between how the Israelites experienced and practiced productivity in that case and how we do. You see, if they tried to be triply productive or even 210% productive, their food would, in fact, rot. The whole experience was to teach them dependence on God. Recently, my dad actually preached here about busyness, and our idolization of it. We all want to be busy. But if we idolize busyness, we also worship productivity. Because what's the end goal of much of our productivity? It's not actually Sabbath, generally. It's not actually rest. Typically, we're productive so that we can do more. We're productive so that we can actually be busier. We want to save time when vacuuming, so we can get on to the rest of our to-do list. These two things together, busyness and productivity, can be incredibly damaging for our souls. So how do we end up here as a society? We could spend time this morning doing sort of a historical and conceptual framework and looking at how ideas became cultural norms, but it's always better, don't you think, to go back to the words of Jesus. Luke 13, 1 through 9 is one of our lectionary texts for this morning, which simply means that in churches all around the world, it's being read and heard. And the first half of this passage reads something like this. Luke writes, Now there were some present at that time who told Jesus about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. Jesus answered, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered this way? I tell you no, but unless you repent, you too will all perish. Or those 18 who died when the Tower of Siloam fell on them, do you think they were more guilty than all the others living in Jerusalem? I tell you no, but unless you repent, you too will all perish. Jesus has just warned before this passage, this large crowd, this is kind of the end of of his sermon. He's warned them that they need to pay attention to the end, the signs of the end, and repent, obviously, lest they perish. And he tags on this response at the end, which actually tells us a lot about the people who were there, people who might be kind of similar to us, actually. Jesus explains that those who are there are not, in fact, morally superior to those who were killed. It's likely that the people who were hearing Jesus held this belief that if disaster or tragedy befell someone, it was because they had sinned. It was God's judgment upon them. And the flip side is, if you are then still alive, if you survived, if no tragedy has befallen you, well, you have not sinned. You're pure, you're superior. And Jesus sees this in their question and tells them, unless you repent, you too will all perish. In other words, he cuts straight to the heart issue that's there the desire for self-justification. I wonder if this is at the heart of our struggle with busyness, with productivity, too. How good does it feel to tell someone your email inbox is at zero when you take a glance at their phone and see a 100 unread messages? I know some of you are just dreaming of the day where you might only have a 100 unread messages. How good does it feel when you can say to someone... Oh, I can't do that now, maybe in a couple weeks, because right now, I'm just slammed. Or perhaps to use that word that kind of has that feeling of smug reluctance, yeah, I think I can squeeze you into my schedule. There's something in us that thrills at this, even in the midst of the stress. We like to feel superior, because as long as we're better than somebody, as long as, frankly, we're better than anybody, we can do it all ourselves. We don't need anyone else. We don't need anything else, least of all God. Productivity becomes self-sufficiency, which becomes pride. And most of the time, if we're being honest with one another, pride feels pretty good. It's the very thing Jesus warned the people against. Our tendency to look at others and compare ourselves. To build ourselves up through our behavior and others' failings. Jesus says to us, unless we too repent, we will perish. It doesn't matter if we're able to multitask and compose emails and be on the phone and do a million other tasks all simultaneously. We're not better than our neighbor. And if we think we are, we are woefully misled. But God extends an invitation to us that pushes against this temptation to self-justification, to comparison with our neighbor. He invites us to rest. But this is not rest as another thing to do. It's not something we put on our checklist and take care of on a Sunday afternoon or a Saturday afternoon. It's the temptation, right? To see rest as another example of our productivity as a thing that we work hard for all week long and maybe increase our busyness so that we can rest. No, to the contrary, if busyness is a heart issue then so is rest. It's an approach, a framework, a way of living our lives. We're painted a beautiful picture of what this looks like in our text for this morning, Psalm 63. I know I tricked you with the Luke 13 passage. This one is the one in your worship guide. Hear these words from Psalm 63, 1 through 8. You, God, are my God. Earnestly I seek you. I thirst for you. My whole being longs for you in a dry and parched land where there is no water. I have seen you in the sanctuary and beheld your power and your glory. Because your love is better than life, my lips will glorify you. I will praise you as long as I live, and in your name I will lift up my hands. I will be Fully satisfied. As with the richest of foods. With singing lips my mouth will praise you. On my bed I remember you. I think of you through the watches of the night. Because you are my help. I sing in the shadow of your wings. I cling to you. Your right hand upholds me. The word rest doesn't actually show up in our psalm. But it's the attitude of David in verses 6 through 8 that show us that here's a man deeply at peace. He sings in the shadow of God's wings. doesn't need to strive because God's right hand upholds him. He rests. Just a couple of comments on this passage. Two things that this kind of rest frees us from and two things that it gives us. First of all, rest frees us from a lack of perspective. Kevin talked last week from Psalm 27, you might remember, that the crux of that psalm is really this desire of the psalmist to see God, to be in his presence, to see God's glory. And in Psalm 63, the psalmist says, I have seen your power and your glory. He has witnessed God's goodness so richly that his lips cannot help glorify him. David knows that God's love is better than life. God's love is superior to anything David is experiencing. As David rests in God's presence, he gains perspective. Zach is a good friend of mine. In 2005, he traveled to Belize. And Belize is actually one of the places in Latin America that gets more short-term missionaries from the U.S. than just about any other country. The reason being that English is their common language there. And Zach traveled there in 2005 and fell in love with the people and the place. And a couple years later, he founded an organization called Sports Servants that brought basically youth sports programs to schools in the area with the idea of also communicating the love of God for the people of Belize. Now, Zach has processed over the years what this mission, what this work would look like, he's gone a slightly different direction than we might expect. We might expect that he would take a number of teams down there annually who would run sports clinics and workshops, that there would be a lot of sending and going and doing. But as Zach rested, as he reflected, he discovered something. God was already at work in Belize. God was already on mission. Today... Sports Servants is primarily a locally-led movement of these youth sports programs with official support from the government for their training workshops for coaches and 21 different school programs participating. Zach travels down there not to bring teams, not to do a lot, but to bring encouragement, suggestions to facilitate the growth of this program. See, when we rest... When we aren't so caught up in the myriad of things that we need to do or ought to do or someone tells us we should do, we see that God's already at work. The reality, friends, is that God doesn't need our productivity. It's pretty painful to admit, frankly. He wants us instead to live a life of rest so that we can hear his voice. The second thing that rest frees us from is our deepest fears. David writes in verses six through seven, on my bed, I remember you. I think of you through the watches of the night because you are my help. I sing in the shadow of your wings. The watches of the night. Most of us are probably not practiced in this. You know, you probably don't get up at 2 a.m. and then 3.30 a.m. and make the rounds of the house and wake up the kids so they can keep watch the rest of the night. In fact, most of you are desperately trying to avoid waking the kids up. We sleep in relative security, but David in this situation is in anything but relative security. He has been chased out of Jerusalem by his own son, and it's possible that as he's penning this very psalm, Absalom is leading an army to come and kill him. And yet, I sing in the shadow of your wings, and all night I think of you. See, true rest in the presence of God delivers us from our fears. I think of my youngest brother, Joel, who, when he was a very little child, had a very strong response to the question, are you tired? And it wasn't a rebellious one. In fact, it was quite the opposite. We would ask, are you tired? And it didn't matter what time of the day. It could be mid-morning. It could be afternoon. He could have just woken up from a nap. But Joel would start rubbing his eyes, and yawning, and next thing you know, basically be asleep. See, in a world where there's so many things to be afraid, Joel knew even then that he was in such a safe place with family. He didn't need to be vigilant. He had nothing to be afraid of. When we asked, are you tired, he could happily and comfortably fall asleep. I wonder if God asks us the same question. Are you tired? Perhaps he's saying I have a place for you to rest. Friends, are you tired? Rest delivers us from a lack of perspective and from our deepest fears. Also gives us a couple of things. First of all, it gives us deep satisfaction. Hear this language again from this psalm. I will praise you as long as I live, and in your name I will lift up my hands. I will be fully satisfied as with the richest of foods. With singing lips, my mouth will praise you. I will be fully satisfied. There's a deep, almost physical weight to these words, isn't there? Some of you might be familiar with the movie, the film, The Feast. It's a 1987 Danish film, so maybe actually some of you are not aware of this. Uh, but it's the story of an austere group... Of Christians who are living in Denmark and this particular group believes that essentially pleasure and delight are out of bounds let's avoid that well one day a woman named Babette comes to town and she's fleeing violence in France, she's uh, basically a French refugee and she shows up in town with nothing and goes to the two uh, daughters of the founder of this religious sect and say says I can't give you anything but I can cook can I live with you The two women take her in. The only connection that Babette has back to her home country is a lottery ticket that she has a friend renew for her each year. Well, some years pass, and one day, Babette gets news that she actually won the lottery. And she offers to give sort of what they think is a farewell meal to the townspeople and these women. And the women are so worried that the food might be good enough that they might experience some kind of delight that they tell all those who are coming, you cannot speak or comment about the food as we eat it. We're going to eat in austere silence. So Babette prepares a feast, and it is a sumptuous feast. She imports ingredients. There's breads with crusts so delicate they crackle as you take them, desserts that melt on your mouth. And as these townspeople eat, they begin to be changed. Vows of silence begin to be smiles. Old love is rekindled. Joy breaks in. Only later do they find out that Babette had spent the entirety of her lottery money, 10,000 francs, on this meal. They were satisfied with the richest of foods. This is the type of satisfaction that God longs to give us. If only we would rest. An interesting flip side to rest. but it gives us deep satisfaction, it also interestingly gives us deep longing. Perhaps when we first read the initial verses of Psalm 63, this longing for God, we hear them as someone who is trying to catch a glimpse of God. He feels far off. I'm all alone. I'm in the desert. But in fact, we know from the rest of the Psalm that this is someone who's intimately familiar with God and his presence. This very longing actually comes out of rest. Thomas Aquinas, the 13th century theologian, wrote this. He said, The nearer a thing is to its end or goal, the greater the desire with which it tends to that end. And however much we know that God is, we still go on desiring and seek to know him in his essence. Put it simply, the closer something gets to where it's supposed to be, the more it wants to be there. We could think of this as a kind of Christian magnetism. The closer we get to God, the more, just like two magnets being pulled apart, the harder it is to separate. The more we long to be close to him. The more we rest in his presence, the more acutely we feel how desperate we are for him. Like we are in a dry and weary land without water. It's the one, these are the words of one who desperately longs for what they're already tasting. We are delivered from a lack of perspective and from our deep fears, and we are mysteriously and simultaneously given deep satisfaction and deep longing. In the midst of all this, perhaps we hear that question again God asking us, Are you tired? Are you tired? There's a couple of questions for us maybe to think about as we respond to this psalm. And they're simple questions, but also challenging questions. First of all, do we trust this God who asks, are you tired? Friends, we cannot rest until we trust the one in whose shadow we can sing. We can't rest until we own the words of our call to worship this morning as our own. My salvation and my honor depend on God. He is my mighty rock, my refuge. Trust in him at all times, you people. Pour out your hearts to him, for God is our refuge. Unless we trust that God's love is truly better than life, that he leads us in the ways that are best, we will never rest. We will keep working, doing, and striving Keep finding new ways to increase our productivity, extend our work week, because after all, it all depends on us. Do we trust the one who asks, Are you tired? The second question is also a simple one Do we actually want to rest? It might seem like a dumb question. Of course, who doesn't want to rest? Who doesn't enjoy time with family? Who doesn't enjoy playing games? Who doesn't enjoy a hot cup of coffee or hot chocolate on a cold day? Who doesn't enjoy movies and time with family? What do you mean? Of course I want to rest. But many of us, while professing that rest would be wonderful, how many times have we said, I need a vacation, are still caught up and ruled by busyness and productivity. Perhaps God is not just asking us, are you tired? Perhaps he's also saying, are you done yet? Are we done pretending that we want a break when our entire identity is wrapped up in what we do? Are we done pretending that we don't think of ourselves as superior because we work 50 hours whereas our friends have part-time jobs? Are we done pretending that our constant busyness is not slowly eating away at our soul's? Do we actually want to rest? Friends, the invitation to rest is always extended to us. Psalm 63 lays out that beautiful and rich vision of what it looks like. And frankly, it's unlikely that much of this is new. We just had a sermon about a topic very similar two weeks ago. But we need reminding of this, don't we? We need reminding over and over because while rest is incredibly simple it's also incredibly challenging. Season of Lent is perhaps a most appropriate season to be reflecting on this. It's a season in which we recognize our, our mortality, our frailty, our inability to do everything we might want to. We remember our need for God and our need for rest. We all have things to do. A life of rest is not about stopping doing all these things or ceasing any kind of productivity. Perhaps work is now requiring more of you than you feel like you can give. Perhaps your children have what feels like about 25 extracurricular activities, or perhaps it is actually 25 extracurricular activities that you're responsible to shuttle them around to Perhaps you have so filled the days of what was supposed to be your retirement that somehow, inconceivably, you thought, you found yourself burned out on leisure. Friends, work is not a bad thing. We know that. It's a good and rich gift from God. But busyness and idolizing productivity can destroy us. Augustine lived at the end of the fourth century. He was born to a Christian mother, but in his teen years, he would essentially leave the church and join this group with quite the name, the Manichaeans. And for a while, he lived with Manichaeans and essentially lived a hedonistic lifestyle, encouraged by his peers. But Augustine was a truth seeker, and so eventually he found that their philosophy didn't quite make sense, and so he moved on, and he was fascinated by these people who took the thoughts of Plato and modernized them, and he became essentially what we would call a Neoplatonist. And for a while that was his truth and he lived in line with that. And then one day this happened to him. He writes this in his autobiography. He tells about the day where he was in a garden and as he was walking through the garden he heard a voice. And at first he thought it was just the neighborhood children. Then he thought no, neighborhood children don't typically say these sorts of things. Because what they were saying was take up and read. And after a moment, Augustine realized, I think this is the voice of God. I think I'm being instructed to do something. And in a moment of obedience, he takes up his Bible and opens it to Romans 13 and reads there the Apostle Paul's instructions to put on the Lord Jesus Christ, and his life is transformed. A brilliant but restless and busy man ceases striving as the Spirit changes him. Augustine would later write these words as part of an opening prayer in which he records this story. Perhaps in a week too can hear God's voice echoing again. Are you tired? These are the words of Augustine. He prays, God, you move us to delight in praising you. For you have formed us for yourself. And our hearts are restless until they find rest in you. Let's pray. Father, help us trust you. Father, help us to live lives of rest, not lives of laziness or ignoring our responsibilities, but lives so full of your presence that we have deep peace. Be with us, we pray. Amen.